Hello and welcome to episode 66 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray with you as we prepare to take our weekly wander into some of the darker and less explored corners of the golf world. Some good reaction to our episode last week on Big and Small Golf. Another thanks to Colin Chris for that. And it's a theme that we're continuing today in a funny way when we welcome semi-regular guest slash co-host Harley Cruz into the studio to talk about the fascinating story of a lost golf course with links to Scotland. Perhaps it will be getting a new lease on life after being rediscovered recently. The story of Kamaruka coming up in just a moment. But before we bring Harley in, let me introduce my regular co-host, though he might qualify more as a guest this week, as he wrote the Kamaruka story for Golf Australia magazine, and a fine job he did of it too, it must be said. Adrian Lowe, guest or co-host this week? You get to choose. Uh, I'll take a bit, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I've brought a magazine in, Rod, if you want me to sign you a copy. and uh, do want you to sign yeah. me a copy. <laughs> that would be my pleasure. If I can dictate what what it is that you write. You really did do a fantastic story, and partly because there Go are so on. many fantastic elements to the story, but you did a terrific job of bringing them all together. Uh, yeah, it was a, it's a complicated story, as we'll find out today, mm-hmm. and there's so many aspects to it. Yep. And uh, I've, Hard I've, to know where to start with. It was a real rabbit hole it, yeah. and very fascinating, and I think people enjoy the story. Yeah. yeah, Indeed, we will, and we'll get more into it in a moment. You might have written the story, Logue, but there would have been no story to write if it weren't for the man sitting across the desk from you, Sydney golf course architect and semi-regular good, good co-host Harley Cruz. He's here to tell us how he stumbled across Kamaruka and what might be in its future. Harley, have I oversold it there? Did you rediscover Kamaruka Golf Course? No, I didn't, but morning uh, and g'day, everybody. Um, no, I had a, a phone call out of the blue and it, and it, and uh, from a friend in, in Melbourne who I'd known for 25, 30 years, and and he mentioned this word Kamaruka and he mentioned the word Octoloni, and, uh, and all of a sudden my ears pricked up because uh, Adrian had, had mentioned this lost golf course to me only a matter of four or five weeks earlier and uh, it was quite bizarre um, to all of a sudden have this circumstance of this particular phone call. Yeah, well, let's unpick it. Logue, you can tell, you can pick up the story since you alerted Cruz to the whole thing. What happened? <laughs> uh, well, I, I think I was here with you one day. We'd recorded a podcast and we wandered across the road to have a coffee with Brendan James, the editor of Golf Australia magazine. And it was just when COVID was really sort of, you know, taking taking hold and everybody was sort of wondering what they were going to do with themselves. We stood in an expanded circle, didn't we? Like yes, that, from that's that right. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And uh, uh, I was lamenting the fact, you know, I'm not going to be able to travel around much and play a lot of golf courses all over the place, which is um, uh, a nice sort of thing to be able to do in normal times. But um, I, I suggested maybe I'll go to some regional New South Wales courses and – Brendan said, well, you know what? He sort of had this conspiratorial sort of a tone to it. He says, you know what? There's a a legend of a lost course down the south coast at a place called Kamaruka in Candelo. He was referring to it as Kamaruka Candelo Golf Course. And uh, it is actually sort of in the back. It's closer to this little town called Candelo than- Where, where are we? Just on the put geographically on the map. Whereabouts is it? From it's, Sydney? Or- it's about- 30, 20, 30 minutes inland from Pambula and Marimbula around coastal, that area there. South coast, New South Wales. South, south coast, coast of New South Wales. Uh, so it's in the sort of the hinterland mm-hmm. there of the bigger valley. Snowfields are not far from that area, are they not? If you keep going another 40 minutes to an hour inland, you start to get into that high country around Cooma. And, uh, but before, before that, yeah, it's this very lush sort of green rolling hills. And, uh, I, I don't know if that's just the time of year that we went down there, Harley, but I got the impression that it doesn't get too 
arid and baked out there. Um, it, it has this very like nice English countryside sort of a, a feel to it, which is, is significant in a sense because the estate that the golf course is on is this place called Kamaruka Estate, and the the part of the history of the estate is that it's owned by the the Tooth family, uh, who of Tooth Brewing fame, and the one of the patriarchs of that family, uh, Sir Robert Lucas Tooth, uh, had this affection for in everything England. Uh, he, was, he was born here, but I think he spent most of his life over in England. He wanted to be sort of the colonial made good, I think. And uh, one of the things he did was to try and transform his estate into this English country garden type of uh, thing. And, and Kamaruka Estate is a big, sprawling property, right? Must have been extraordinarily remote back at that time. It's remote today. It must have been extraordinarily remote back then. What was the purpose of the estate? Do we know? It was a cattle run. At the time that it was uh, issued, it was the biggest cattle run in Australia. And that that became... Uh, you know, a cheese farm, or uh, there was, or a, a dairy farm, <laughs> a cheese farm, growing cheese, the growing cheese, cheese growing. It became here, a dairy farm with cheese factories on it. In fact, it w- they had th- up to three cheese factories on the estate, uh, with little townships around each one. So the and and up to well, well over a hundred work- workers and their families living. Uh, on the estate at so the time. So we need to be self-sufficient. Well, Geographically, wouldn't they? There's no shops. They have schools and, you don't pop the coals in lodges. 1870 and pick up. But, and they turned the milk into cheese because they went the refrigerated semi-trailers yeah, yeah. to bring the milk back to Sydney or Melbourne. So you, you had to do something with the milk. Make and, use of and, everything uh, that you produced. So it was, it was settled in the mid-1800s, 1830s, 40s, but as for dairy. And I think Kamaruka cheese still exists, doesn't it? Bigger, bigger cheese do make a Kamaruka cheese. Yeah, I don't think it's widely distributed, but it's a it's a yeah. famous variety of cheese. But before going back even further, it was a, a whaling. It was owned by some whalers, the Imlays or something. Imlay like that, brothers were yeah. sort of settled at you know took the had the opportunity to sort of Stay do that area, do that area, be big trouble. You settle that area and and uh, and and basically took up land holdings, big land holdings, several several properties, and were involved with whaling and timber trade. And basically there were steamships running up and down the east coast of New South Wales with various different goods. Yeah, It is for such a remote place. I, I do find it amazing that there's so much history to it. Mm. Like, we, like humans just spread out instantly yeah. <laughs> all over the place. Extraordinary. And that was how they found this place and said, it's perfect for this, let's do this. Yeah. So you had this this English sort of connection. You wanted this English thing. What what did he build there? What did what did it, what does the place look like? What did it look like in its day? Well, when when he when Luke Lucas Tooth took took over the property, the Imlay brothers had already set up the homestead and numerous outbuildings. There was a church there, I believe. Um, as Adrian's saying, yeah, Tooth had been educated in Eton in England. Wanted to he came back to Australia and wanted to really get this grand English estate. So the, there was orchards, uh, a hall built. Um, and ultimately his vision and dream to have uh, people, guests, come and stay there from Sydney and Melbourne and to come and um, experience life on a big, grand English estate. Um, and that also um, developed – and it was large. It was several hundred thousand acres in the beginning. It's it's extremely uh, a smallest version of that today. But uh, the big dream was, yeah, this big English country estate – uh, with with visitors, but he he was basically managing the thing remotely from back in England. Uh, but when he came back to Australia, which he did pretty frequently, um, he he would always go down there and spend time down there. That he was more passionate about that than properties that he owned in Barrel or 
you know, is this big mansion Swifts that he built at Darling Point in uh, on, right on Sydney Harbour. So he he was very passionate about the place. Staggering to think of the miles that he's covering there, regularly travelling from England to Sydney by boat, just regularly travelling from Darling Point to Barrel to Candelo. That's yeah. no small feat today. That's right. <laughs> it's, it's a commitment. So you can yeah. Imagine what it must have been like at the time, travelling by horse and cart, I assume, and uh, and everything yeah. that that would entail. Where does the golf come into it then? The the estate had over a hundred workers living and and working there with these various factories around, and partly as an entertainment for the workers, but also as an attraction, as Harley was saying. Uh, Lucas Tooth started to invest in various things. There, there's a there's a number of stuff there. There's a cricket oval called the Lord's View. Was uh, there not an international match of some sort played there famously at one point? In, in a sense, not actually on the site of where the oval is now, but the there was a international match played between an England eleven, a touring England eleven, and an Australian eleven formed from I think some. Notable. Australian 22, actually. Oh, right. <laughs> so it was, it was, it was actually the, uh, uh, the summer of 1884-1885. The British-English first 11 was playing in Australia and, and the, the records suggest that it was the first 11 British team that came to Kamaruka to play an exhibition match against a local team made up of 22. Um, and the English team smashed the local yeah. team for 22, <laughs> as you'd expect. <laughs> Three days or something. But that Tooth was well connected back to England. So for him to host the English First Eleven was a, was a dream of his, of yeah. course, and on his property. And, and, um, so it was, and the match was held on the river flats next to Can- Cantaloupe Creek, where later on holes two and three would be laid out in the golf course. And they chose that spot because it was relatively flat and there was a big, Right, hill rising above the flat, so people could sit and spectate and watch Air the cricket theater. from up on the hill. Um, it would have been a pretty irregular sort of cricket field, uh, that's for sure. And 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 uh, a six could have ended up in Candelo Creek, no doubt, and no no doubt a few balls probably ended up there on the day. But to think that yeah, there was a first eleven British team playing there in eighteen eighty five was is quite amazing. And I think out of the success of that, uh, you know, Tooth was a passionate man about all these activities. Was then the idea to build the um, the Lord's View Oval over on the main property next to the homestead. So, so I think cricket activities and ultimately that led to other sort of sporting thoughts, and and that led to his idea, basically from back in England, wasn't Adrian, where he came up with the idea that to complete this estate, along with his accommodation that he planned to build, he needed a, a golf course. It was, it was a necessary. I just love the idea of a backyard cricket match, essentially, yeah. with an international touring team. <laughs> yeah. it's, You're it's right. A, couldn't happen today. We think about the golf exhibition matches. We see the posters from the Clates has always got of, you know, was it Trevino, Miller and Thompson? Oh, was, who was the, doing uh, exhibitions here. Yeah, way yeah. out in the backlands, in the yeah. Gippsland, and easy, yeah. tiny little parts of, you know, Victoria and New South Wales, these huge superstars. It wouldn't happen today, and that would yeah. be another thing that, that wouldn't happen today. So cricket aside, he gets to the golf, builds a golf course, What's the real intrigue of the golf course? Because Harley mentioned the name Octoloni earlier, and that would prick any golf fans' ears up because Octoloni, of course, was one of the great names in golf from Scotland. Mm. Well, one of the challenges with researching this was to try and pick up the threads to this to make this connection to Octoloni. And as best we can tell, there's it's a pretty tenuous connection to Octoloni. Don't let that stop you. But Hundreds of courses <laughs> in Australia haven't let that stop them with Mackenzie. <laughs> there, but so there's you know Laurie Octoloni. Uh, there was these two brothers, Laurie and Willie Octoloni, uh, who won 
a British Open and a US Open, respectively. Laurie winning the US Open in 1906? 02. 02, okay. Yeah. Um, and travelled back. Oh, he, for a time, he served as a club pro in a few different clubs, In one in Florida, I think. Yeah, and one up in Chicago, I yeah. think, or Illinois. Yeah, something yeah. like that. And then eventually travelled back to the UK around 1910, sometime around then. And uh, as best we can tell, never came to Australia, uh, but was back in, importantly, he was back in Scotland um, up at St Andrews around 1914, around the, the time war broke out for the First World War. At the same time, uh, Sir Robert Lucas Tooth was in London and the three, his three sons, his only three sons, uh, were also in England and signed up with the British Army to serve as officers in active duty in World War One. And uh, so just before war's broken out, uh, Sir Robert has... Uh, presumably commissioned Octoloni to design a golf course. We've got no evidence of that. But word has travelled back that there's this connection to Laurie Octoloni. Um, and we're still actually researching that. We're, we're trying to find, um, try to get, get to the bottom of yeah. that connection there. But what we do know is that a, an English pro by the name of Ernest Banks, uh, who was – we who was the apparently the pro at Dover Golf Club, um, was sent back with the instructions from Sir Robert to build the course at Kamaruka. And we've got very good documentation of his journey um, coming in on a ship called the Ceramic, uh, docking in Sydney, and where he corresponded with the, the manager of the uh, estate um, at Kamaruka, uh, a guy called Champneys, and... Uh, he was given the choice of coming down by carriage or by boat. Um, I think he came down by carriage um, the long way. Uh, then if you come by boat, you come and you dock at Eden or somewhere like that and then go inland from there. And uh, he stayed in little in the hotel in Candelo for a little while um, and then uh, built the golf course, pretty much got straight into that and built the golf course and it was completed uh, in 1915. So only... Uh, about a, a year or eighteen months after it was envisioned. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. so is the is it the possible? Are we suggesting that perhaps there was some plans that Octoloni handed over to him to, for him to come down and follow? I don't. I don't. Or did think he design it on the ground? We don't have direct there. evidence. Right. Of yeah. That, but was that the rumor? Is that the, the suspicion? I, the, I mean, this this legend of Octoloni has existed since that time, and there's a couple of Laurie Octoloni's clubs. Um, that were displayed at the clubhouse. And uh, so who knows how they got there or whether they're just clubs that uh, have the Octoloni name on them because, you know, that that was quite good. They were a famous club maker mm -hmm. um, or whether they were actually Laurie Octoloni's clubs. We're not, we're not sure. But um, uh, Ernest Banks got his influence from somewhere because he was uh, maybe just what he observed of golf in England at the time. Um, but uh, there's a distinct style which Harley could probably comment on a little more, but there's a distinct style to the golf course at Kamaruka, which is unique in Australia and uh, wasn't replicated in any other golf course. Uh, so, you know, and, and it's quite an exciting sort of thing to, to uncover in this day and age. Well, tell us about the course, Harley. I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll get into that. But I've been thinking a bit further about the, the Octoloni connection, and we, as I said, we don't know if it's 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 real or not. But it it, it could be something. You, know, you think about Octoloni being plying his trade in in the US since 1902 when he won the 
US Open, and I think he had up to seven top top ten finishes as well when he played it subsequently as well. But he he came back to Scotland, and the timing has it. He was obviously in Scotland, as Adrian said, with with Tooth in England. But it, it's almost like Tooth's got this grand vision for the estate, and I guess there'll be a certain prestige to put a name mm-hmm. to the golf course, like Octomite, like we do today with yeah, modern players right. putting their names to golf design. So if you put the 1902 US Open winner's name um, to to your golf development and to your remote estate where you mm. want to try and guess to go and stay in your grand new um, uh, hostel, they called it, the Kamaruka Hostel, the, the sort of plush hotel modelled on the Brighton Pavilion and play in your golf course, you put tag a good name to it. So I suspect it, it, it might be something as simple as that. They, they may have met. Dr. Laney got a few hundred pounds for putting his name to it. The naming rights, deal. naming rights, and and but, like Trump as Cam- old as time itself. That's Trump right. Camaruka. Oh, yeah. Correct. So, <laughs> Trump <and> obviously, Camaruka. <laughs> <laughs> if you're looking for funding, <laughs> oh dear. So, you know, obviously, you know, Tooth was he was a he was a, he, he did stuff, didn't he? He got things done, and and he wanted to get things done in a certain way. You know, have a cricket match and go right. I'm going to go and build a cricket field and. Or a hostel, you know, market on a, base it on the um, Brighton Pavilion golf course. So I'll get a big name in golf. So he he kind of got the whole it thing. Would fit so, in with his personality. Well, yeah, we know of him obviously. If that was sounds, the case. it seems that way. And so and then, but he needed someone to build it. Knew what they were doing, and and uh, so somehow Banks was recommended to do it, and he came out and started building this golf course in 1914. Um, Around about October, November, nineteen fourteen. So he'd been he'd been around for a month or two before it actually started, and and basically they built this entire nine holes of golf by hand uh, with a few horses and drays and bit of soil around. So and by then too, a lot of the young men in the district had gone off to war, and so there was basically a lot of the older men around on the estate um, were helping this young youngish uh, British professional. Um, dig holes in the ground and create mounds and, and create this strange place we call the golf course, which none of the locals in the district would have seen a golf course before. And what I love about it is, is that Banks has built this thing basically in less than 12 months. It's all been done by hand with labour uh, in total isolation of any golf or golfing people from Melbourne or Sydney. He's just done it as he knew golf in that 12-month window um, and built, um, you know, what is quite a remarkable golf course in the sense it was built on the classic sort of penal school of architecture with, uh, basically a lot of cross hazards are, uh, on holes. So, I mean, the, the first tee shots, you know, hitting across Candelow Creek, which is a big, big carry, actually, a big, big wide, uh, riverbed, more of a river than a creek almost. And, uh, and then numerous, um, Beautifully shaped, hand-built uh, ridges and mounds with just strips of sand at the bottom as, as cross hazards, and and greens, you know, surrounded by you know bunkering and even one big long crescent bunker that would go right round the from the rear of the green right round to the right hand side. So it was, it's very quirky, but it is it is the only piece of remnant um, penal golf course architecture that I've fully intact that I've seen anywhere in Australia. And the quest is to find out is there another Example of intact penal golf course architecture in Australia, and and if there is, uh, I'd be very surprised because I think the the beauty of Kamaruka is is that because of its isolation, both um, physically and 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 also from the the influences of Melbourne and Sydney golfers, this thing has has sat there 
basically untouched. And I think the locals too, not knowing maybe Melbourne or Sydney golf, have accepted Kamaruka for what it was when it was first built. And they accepted, well, this is golf. This is, you know, an expert from England came out and built it and this is what golf is. Um, and of course, but it never had an irrigation system. So it, it would, it would ebb and flow with the seasons of drought and, and rainfall. I mean, it was, it was sheep used to graze the golf course, um, with no fences around the green. So it was a fairly wild place golfing wise, I'd imagine, in terms of playing surfaces. And ultimately, uh, not having an irrigation system and not having too much in the way of resources, um, the golf course has been relatively untouched. Um, and, and, and as opposed to Melbourne and Sydney golf courses where, you know, as the game's changed and evolved and irrigation systems have come in and, and funds have allowed lengthening of holes and, you know, all sorts of things, this thing's remained intact since 1915. The tragedy, of course, of this whole story was that, um, Construction started in 1914. It was finished in August 1915. But Tooth himself passed away in February of 1915 before the golf course was finished. He never saw the golf course finished. He never saw the hostel finished. They had a hall built, and I'm not sure if he saw the hall. The hall, but um, and some of the outbuildings of the hall um, relate to a a beautiful kiosk they put on the golf course site. This sort of hexagonal. Um, 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 profile building with sort of this pitched hexagonal sort of conical roof on it where they would serve refreshments mid-round. You could go and play nine holes and have refreshments and play more golf or because you know, it was a little bit away from the from It's the a nine-hole course, by the way. I don't know if we've yeah, said that. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. true. It's nine-hole yeah. nine There's layout. a few extra holes here but, and there. You know, it had 32 tees on it for nine holes when it was first opened. So there's multiple teeing options uh, to play from different angles and go around it multiple times and all sorts of things. So you know, just to bring those things back to life today would be amazing because it'd be a whole lot of fun just to play it off the little tees. And the tees were no more than the, you know, size of a table tennis table. They were, they were tiny, uh, but that's all they needed to be. Um, but yeah, the, the tragedy was, to, of course, Tooth passing away himself. But as Adrian said, you know, the, his sons uh, signed up for World War II, which started in August 1914. And by September, uh, one of his sons passed away in action in, in, in a battle in France, and six weeks later, the other son. So within within two months of the war starting, he, he lost both his sons. Uh, he was survived by another son who then passed away of pneumonia in 1918 of war-related injuries. So the, the three sons were lost uh, uh, um, during this time, and, and Tooth himself. So there was the estate with his brand-new golf course sitting there, um, and the boss had gone. It's a rudderless ship. In yeah, some ways, yeah, this. yeah. So, but you know, I think people were faithful to the vision uh, and remain faithful. And here it is today, sitting there, as as with a few dairy cattle running around on the paddock, and and uh, the, ultimately with with the lack of being able to irrigate things, um, the greens, which you can still the out, see the outlines of the original greens today, um, as defined by some of the greenside bunkering, um, became sand scrapes. Probably, I don't know, the fifties or sixties, they became sand scrapes faithful to the midpoint of each green basically you, you'll find a little round sand scrape there today um so ultimately i guess the course then suffered too to the modern courses that got built at you know at, at tartha and and pambula marimbula which you know became you know the, the proper golf and this thing sort of i guess fell into a bit of rack and roll there's there was a local faithfuls but um Ultimately, they were slashing the grass for a few handful of golfers, and um, it sort of came. When did it close, Adrian? It closed probably well 
we think about 15 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's yeah. fairly yeah. recent. So, yeah, sometime around then. And it's still sort of just perfectly preserved, yeah. a little time capsule there. And I think for many years while they were playing the sand scrapes, the bunkers themselves had been all but grassed over, um, perhaps with one or two exceptions. Um, but it's remarkable that the the marks in the land there are all just yeah. perfectly preserved. The, um, and the photos that are in the story, which you took yeah. uh, in the magazine, it's worth buying the magazine to have a look. Golf courses ultimately are a visual thing. We can talk about it all we want, but if you want to have a look at what is sort of left in the ground there and what could possibly be, uh, go out and buy a copy of the magazine, Golf Australia magazine, because, well, apart from anything else, it supports us. Sports me anyway, indeed, because so, <laughs> I work for them. Yeah. So, so do the right thing. What is the property now, Adrian? What's its What's its current iteration? It It's interesting. It stayed with the Tooth family for a, over 150 years. Um, I think it's one of the longest continually owned properties of that type um, in in Australia. Certainly, uh, ultimately, after the three sons died in the war, they eventually found an heir, uh, one of the son's wives, I think. Um, but there was some legal issues with that. If you don't stop bashing the table, there's going to oh, be real problems. <laughs> there were some legal issues with that. And one of the wives, there was two wives that could have, or a wife and a sister or something, that could have taken uh, ownership of the property. But for some legal reason, they couldn't do it until they turned 50 years old. Um, probably something to do with being women. Um, and uh, But one of them did eventually take ownership of the property and was an excellent steward of the property and the, the business and keeping the dairy farm going. Uh, and that went on for a long time. One of her sons, so one of Tooth's grandsons, uh, eventually took it over and uh, interestingly lives in Scotland, I think, and runs a lot of, or for many years, ran the business of the, of the property from Scotland, but then you know came back from time to time. Uh, and lived for long periods of time down there as well. Um, and uh, the, he only sold it in oh, about 10 years ago or less than that. Um, but it was sold off in portions in, in two phases. And, and by this time it had shrunk like lots of, yeah. lots of parcels of it had been sold off over time. But uh, eventually the two main parts of the property, um, all of the, all of the cattle concern got sold off first, I think. And then the sort of homestead and, and, the main area of the estate got sold second, both to the same man, um, uh, another cattle farmer who had actually worked on the property, um, a guy called Barry Moffat, uh, who uh, Harley and I met. <laughs> he's quite a character. Um, and uh, Barry's, you know, he's, he's a cattle farmer. First and foremost, well, dairy, oh, dairy, dairy farmer, yeah, not cheese yeah. farmer. No, no, <laughs> no dairy. Is he growing spaghetti down there anywhere? I think it's a big spaghetti growing. Uh, <laughs> Barry, Barry grew up on the property next door, and so oh, okay. he's always known Camaruka. And 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 you know, and and he worked on Camaruka as a kid. And I think his mum might have worked on Camaruka too when he was growing up. You so- stop bashing the table and you stay on the microphone. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm going to have to come over there. <laughs> so you know, someone like Barry has known Camaruka since he was, you know. Knee high to a grasshopper, as they say, and then he he just it was part of where he grew up. So, what does he remember of the golf course, Harley? I don't think we actually. He doesn't remember much because he certainly wasn't a golfer. Um, Barry Barry was a is a diehard um, farmer, dairy farmer, and and uh, you know he's a rural man really. Um, and and so he so I think and, and classic the classic situation when you're a farmer and the next door property comes up for sale, you buy it. You try and buy if it you if can. you can. So so. Um, 
Barry and and his bank manager, as you said, bought the property, and uh, <laughs> me and the banks own this. Joint and, venture, uh, yeah. and uh, so so Barry had to buy it, and he and, he, and so he has it today. Um, and and Barry's not your average dairy farmer as such; he's fairly entrepreneurial for the district. You know, if you're alone, farming alone, it it's, can be a tough tough gig. So he's he actually runs a fleet of trucks delivering grain and fertilizer around the Bega Valley, and. And has a few properties in town, including the a fantastic cafe in Candelo that he's uh, renovated and restored, and and uh, does a pretty good bake the bacon and egg roll. <laughs> well, if it gets a thumbs up from Logue, oh. it's a good bacon and egg roll. Sensational. Like a, bacon. A I reckon you could get Logue just to drive to Candelo from <laughs> just Sydney, for the bacon, just egg, bacon roll. egg roll. <laughs> what did he make of you two lunatics coming on, jumping over his fence, and banging on about some lost golf course? Well, Particularly good, not being a golfer, who I imagine he would have been thinking, who cares? Good call. I mean, here we are coming all the way from Sydney, you know, these sort of city city blokes coming down there to have a look at his jump defence and have a look at this bit of land. And and as I said, he, he, he understands there was a golf course there. but um, Does he use the land for anything or is it just? Oh, he just runs a few cattle. But it's one of those, you know, it's one of those paddocks. It's, it's across the roads, across the creek. You've got to drive the cattle up the other laneway and into this sort of small triangle of dirt. So he's, and it's not, it's not his most fertile paddock, so I think he just puts a few cattle out there to keep the grass down a bit, or just cow and calf because it's small and they can sort of keep them protected in that area. So it's it's always been this offshoot, and I think that's why the golf course ended up there in the first place. It was just across the road from the homestead. It was this paddock that wasn't highly fertile. Wasn't so in the way. Wasn't used for much else. It, it was the perfect place for it. Was it. the old wasteland of the farm to go and put a put a golf course in. Um, Close enough to the homestead to be not too far away, but um, but also just this this sort of little triangular piece of ground that didn't just was awkward piece. So it, it, in that sense, it worked perfectly. Um, and uh, but yeah, Barry, I don't know what he what he thinks, but he, you know we were out there looking at this thing called the golf course, and I, I guess we you know, he invited us into the to the hall where it, which was used as sort of the pseudo clubhouse. Um, in the last sort of 20, de- uh, 20 or so years of the golf course and in the hall was the golfing memorabilia and scorecards and the, and the, um, and boards and, and, uh, and up on the wall was this plan of the golf course. Um, and so we know exactly what well, we know. Well, it's planned to put in the green. Yeah. I think the, the plan of the golf course, I actually think is a, is actually an as built plan. So it wasn't actually a design plan for oh, the golf okay. course. I, it's actually an as built plan. Right. So someone, very beautifully drew, and, and it's in the magazine article, a, a snippet of the plan there, very beautifully drew the nine holes of golf and all the features. Uh, you know, it was done as an as-built and very accurately done. So the, the joy of that is, is Adrian and I could walk the, through the paddocks there and say, with the plan, and say there should be a tee, right? Bang, and there, there it was. There and, there, you don't, and there should be a bunker, and bang, there it is. You know, and it's just a, a depression that's grassed in naturally and a few pasture grasses and weeds or whatever, but... It's all there. That's the beauty of this place. It's it's to the plan is all there today. It hasn't been touched, and uh, and so having that plan um, means that faithfully, if there's the ability to do it, it can be really faithfully restored to what it originally was. I'm very confident of that, and uh, so that's that's quite exciting itself. That there's this very accurate plan, um, and graphically, the plan um, is really instantly drawn. Uh, just the line work and. There's something a little bit similar in style, and that's um, something I just sort of discovered on the wall at Royal Melbourne Golf Club. Is the original plan for the of the Sandringham course that stretched out towards Black Rock, the 1901-1905 Sandringham 18-hole golf course that ultimately closed in 1931 when they started to build the West Course. But 
the the graphic style and the, the same penal style of architecture that existed at the Sandringham 18-hole layout is very similar uh, or identical in a sort of graphic style to the Kamaruka drawing. Same person drew both your well, suggestions? Yeah, it was drawn by a, f- a Melbourne architectural firm is the best of my knowledge, and I'm still researching into that. But, that could uh, be very interesting, couldn't it, if yeah, there's a link there? Yeah, but there's there's definitely a link in, this, in, the, in the style of the drawing and uh, – and maybe that was just the drafting style of the day, but you can imagine it wouldn't have been too many people drawing golf course plans back then. Um, but again, that penal architecture of which the Sandringham course was, of which there are still some remnants of that penal architecture in the west course of Royal Melbourne. Oh, uh, what are you thinking is, of in particular there? Well, particularly 15th West. So the uh, 15th West of Royal Melbourne, which uh, oh, abounds yeah. the Sandringham public course. It's on the other side of the paddock, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Road. You've got the uh, cross-ridging on that hole of with course, the yes. wild grasses and yeah. a sort of long bunker sitting within the cross-ridging. That's sort of the classic penal architecture mm. that uh, Mackenzie and Russell left behind. And there's commentary around Mackenzie and Russell leaving it behind because they wanted to show people what the old- <laughs> This is the awful stuff <laughs> that we fixed. More or less <laughs> what the penal architecture is. So there is some there is some commentary on that which I'm keen to sort of- um, delve into a bit further but you know that's a bit of remnant um 1901 layout in in the melbourne in the west course of Melbourne. there are a few other bunkers from that original sandringham course which are still there today at royal melbourne as bunkers we believe and then there's some hollows classic hollows the grassed over that are in in the uh, in parts of the west course that were part of that sandringham layout but getting back to it so it was that was the penal architecture which was golf in those days prior to obviously Mackenzie coming out to Australia and bringing strategic architecture. So Candelo is this really incredible intact piece of important penal, penal architectural piece, golf. Yeah. Uh, and, and it might be the oldest intact nine holes or 18 holes, or nine holes obviously, but uh, intact golf course in New South Wales. I, I suspect it might be the oldest intact nine holes of golf or of any golf in Australia perhaps. Um, Certainly of the penal type, no doubt, but but maybe oh, maybe together oh, because oh. most things you know are, there are other golf courses you know going back to you know, the eighteen hundreds on the same piece of land, but they've all been changed dramatically, metal changed and modified and evolved and all those sort of things. So, be interesting to see. That's that's something we need to uh, take further and, and and sort of try and find out the facts. Absolutely fascinating story these two have uncovered down there at Kamaruka, and we'll be back to it in just a moment. But it's that time where I need to remind you that our Talking Golf Network sponsor, thegolfsociety.com.au, are winding down their end-of-season sale. Don't forget, listeners get an extra 20% off sale prices that are already up to 50% off. If you haven't checked it out, make sure you do. Under Armour shirts for less than $50, Jay Lindeberg under $100, plus a huge range of women's clothing, shoes and accessories, thegolfsociety.com.au, code TG at checkout to get an extra 20% off. Now back to the studio, and Adrian Logue and Harley Cruz. So as an architect, you're confident you could recreate what was there, should somebody want to? Very easily. Very, very, very easily. I think... You know, if we can sensitively put in an irrigation system in there, that which allow us to actually have bring the greens back to how they were built on day one, um, and having the ability to, to have them watered and have grow grass all year round, uh, and you know the same for, for fairways, just a very simple irrigation system and not requiring too much water, but just enough to you, we could very faithfully restore that golf course in a very short period of time. 
Um, and the, the head greenkeeper at nearby Pambula Marimbula Golf Club, a guy called Pat Wilson, who's a bit of a legend around those around that area. Um, he's he's wanting, very keen to help out with all of that. Um, and there is a lot of support around the community. I was going to say, so is it going to happen? What's the next step here? You guys have uncovered this golf course, and that's fantastic. You've been out of Butte Bacon and Egg Roll. <laughs> You've had a look at the old greens. What about the rest of us? Is What happens from here? Well, if it ended with the bacon and egg roll, it would have been <laughs> sufficient. But um, if we can get a golf course out of it, it would be even better. Um, and it, it is, uh, it's a, such a special place. It, it sounds like we're talking about a paddock where sheep just roam around, but you walk down onto the property and it's just so special. It's set in this beautiful little valley with a, with a hill that it's, the course is sort of routed around this central hill, um, which comes into play a little bit on a couple of holes and it's, you just instantly want to play it. Like you just, you really regret not bringing some clubs and a ball with you. How would it play with modern golf equipment? Uh, short, but mm-hmm. um, interesting. Yeah, it'd, it'd be a great hickory course, but very sporty. And in fact, even contemporary newspaper reports of the course described it as sporty, which is a word fantastic. we've lost from the game. It's yeah. sporty. It's yeah. what we need more of. It's, it? it's two thousand seven hundred yards. Yeah, you know, she's so not. It's not as long. Twenty four hundred meters. Make a great hickory course. Mm-hmm. And and. And a lot of fun, like a lot of fun. So and, fun. And the combinations and permutations of, of holes. I mean, there was even a 10th hole built, laid out as an optional hole to, to play it, to get back to the, to the starting point. You, you could play multiple combinations of holes. Well, 32 tees, I think you said. Correct. So, so there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of fun. And even just on the river flat, yeah. you could play cross country golf between other holes. You could tee off from one hole to the, to another and do all sorts of things, which is fantastic. But actually, the other thing that we haven't mentioned, uh, you know, we talked about World War One and the tragedy of, of Tooth losing his sons, but also too in that di- Bigger Valley district, there was you know young men never never returned, and and so they've they've actually named the golf holes after World War One battles. So, oh, right. wow. so apart from. Um, from home, you know, you, you have names Bring like- Bring that mic with you when you go over there. Yeah, apart from, take it with you. There you apart go. Apart from home, you've got names like Gallipoli, The Crater, Shrapnel Gully, Gully, Hill 60, Salonica, The Labyrinth, and then we have The Kiosk, which is the eighth hole with the refreshments are in home. So there we are. Seven, seven holes are named after World War One battles. So there's this great, great connection with, you know, World War I, um, there's a great connection with cr- cricket. There's a lot of interesting history on the site. And and um, important even the kiosk area. is an interesting thing. It, it's got so many quirks that any golf course would build their whole brand around. Like if you if you're you know doing a brand thing, like the, we've got the concession on this week, oh, thing, you know, to have made a whole massive brand around somebody just conceding a putt is just the mind boggles. This golf course has they they would have killed for the sort of history that this place has got with the connections to the war. The names of those holes, that's not some modern contrivance. No, that's what they were called. That's what they were called. And, and it would have been a very fresh and powerful that's right. uh, thing at the time, oh, naming exactly. those holes, because yeah. those battles would have been famous. People would have been reading about them in the paper. People there would have lost Correct. siblings, yep. husbands, yep. fathers yep. That's right. in that's those not very some, battles. not some Correct. marketing you know, no. who's come up no. with those things. It's like It had meaning to those people. And there's some European pine on the property um, which is actually a stunning sort of specimen. They're sort of dotted about. They, don't, they haven't sort of taken over. But the first few of those were pre- apparently planted in honour of the three sons that died in the war. Um, and they've propagated a little bit. And they provide this real sort of punctuation mark as you're going around the property. Mm. They're a very striking tree. And 
the, you've got the creek is is really so beautiful, Candelow Creek, as as um, Harley said, it's more of a river and it, it flows very clean and clean and it's got nice sand in the banks yeah. as well, which a might be useful for bunkers. You can see the eyes lighting up over there. And yeah. uh, it had a uh, like a very attractive bridge that went over it that we're going to restore. Um, the bridge got uh, washed away a couple of times over the, over the years, so hopefully modern engineering can uh, get something permanent in place there. And uh, it, even this kiosk is is a very attractive little tin shed. Yeah, <laughs> it is very it's, handsome. Yeah, yeah. And structure. it was it was built at the same time in in nineteen fourteen fifteen as as the hall and the outbuildings of the hall. So there's a there's a great sort of architectural connection to the to back to the homestead, I guess. And and the other the other interesting quirk was of course the first tees. There's like white horizontal railings, almost like out of a horse paddock, around the tees, built to keep to keep spectators. At a safe distance away from people teeing off. Oh, right. So Game there's, first, uh, yeah. I've never seen, um, that on a, on a golf course in Australia. And it was just a practical solution. And they're still there today from 1915, these beautiful, um, white painted timber railings, uh, around, you know, horseshoe rail- shaped railings around yeah. each, each of the championship and the forward, forward tees. And it's, an, it's a pretty, um, impressive, almost daunting, uh, carry to the fairway, a fairly flat opening. Fairway, but you know it's it's quite a big carry over the river, which, when it's flowing at its full rate, it'd be a fairly dramatic opening tee shot. What must it have been in 1915? Oh, <laughs> daunting mm. to the yeah. to the modern golfer who's yeah. uh, everything's adjusted for yeah. for the way we hit it today. Might have been Freudian. You said, "We're gonna who's we and what are you gonna do? What do you want to happen? And what would it look like if there was a restoration here? There's got to be some commercial aspect to it. Golf courses aren't free to run." So, A, is Barry Moffat open to having the golf course restored on that property? And, B, what would it look like? What would it be? What would you hope for it to end up being? We're not sure of Barry's intentions at, at this point. We hope that Barry can be a part of it. Um, it's quite possible. I, I think Barry himself, with the few interactions we've had with him, he recognises the sort of the As passion. As a local, he must have a passion. We've got about just that he owns Barry it. is very aware of the local history and uh, and as Harley said, he's you know, a bit of an entrepreneur, um, and I think he'd be a fantastic person to be um, putting his support behind it, uh, and that might well happen. Um, we're also looking at, you know, the heritage aspects of the property, um, even just the kiosk itself is, you could lay claim to some heritage listing there, but we think, you know, the golf course design is has heritage merit. Uh, there's also the fact that that cricket match was played on the actual mm. golf course, um, and many aspects of it um, suggest heritage listings could protect the land from being sort of subdivided or used for something other than golf. Uh, but that that could be a pathway to actually getting it restored um, and just money talks as well. Um, there's a bit of a consortium forming of people who uh, could you know could be interested in just buying it out and and ensuring that it happens that way. So. Mm. Barry, I mean, Barry's a practical man. He's a farmer, and he he, see, he sees that as a paddock. He doesn't see it as a golf course. Of course. And and you know, the golf course closed because it didn't stack up financially, and and uh, and so he, you know, he he sees the land as potential lots for a subdivision. Uh, you know, if he's going to extract some value out of his property, you know, that's that's one other angle for for Barry. I mean, that's an option for him. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and a very real option for Barry is, would be to subdivide it if if he can. So, and there may be limitations on that, which you know that's that's part of the old planning scheme of the Shire. You but- can see how quickly these things become complex, can't you? When yeah. you start to you only scratch the surface, there's an awful lot of things yeah. to consider yeah. and sort of barriers in yeah. place. It's easy to say, oh, that should be restored as this. It's never that simple, is it? Yeah. So the commercial angle of it is is a little, as you say, it's a bit complex. And and so yeah, if you to to make it. To make it work, I think it's it really is um, preserving, restoring, and promoting this a nine-hole intact penal golf course, which you know, extremely um, charming and fun to play. Um, it is a long way from Melbourne or Sydney, and 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 not so far from Canberra. It's by the way, it's on the main road from Pambula and Rimbula, Canberra. Canberra, you go oh, right okay. past Camaruka, you go right past right. the golf course. It's a fairly high traffic. Area, so it gets a fair amount reason, of yeah. you know, you don't get your semi trailers and trucks, but you get a fair amount of of, of the, the traffic going from Canberra to the coast and vice versa through that road. That's right, there. right past, spot, isn't it? Yeah. right past the golf yeah. course, and and it it's at very least attractive. one car every. Five minutes. Yeah, yeah, it's a very attractive uh, site from the road. So you can you, you know you can catch a lot of passerby traffic, but I think it, it'd be one that that whole south coast of New South Wales, which is spectacular. Uh, I think they call it the Sapphire Coast. By the time you get down to Pambilimbula area, um, does get a lot of um, golf related tourism with Pambilimbula Golf Course and Tartar and Bermagui and others. So it would you'd have to try and get it to a point that it's on the must play list for people going there where. You know, you play the, these coastal courses and then go into the hinterland and, 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 you know, on the way into Pambula Rimbula or into that area or on the way out, get a quick nine holes there. But it, it's a, it's a hell of a lot of fun. And I think too, combining the golf with other local interests, you know, Cantalow Township, I remember going there 20 odd years ago and there'd be one car on the main street and now the main street's full and, Candelo sort of place to go when maybe the weather isn't so great for, to be on the beach that day, but let's go into Candelo and have some lunch in 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 Candelo. So I think there's enough regional tourism, and certainly the Bega Valley Shire is keen to promote tourism and tourism assets. So I think you'll get a lot of support from Bega Valley to to bring this golf course back to life, and the whole historical elements too. I was going to say it's a real crossover, isn't yeah. it? The history of the place yeah. clearly, which is and we haven't mentioned, but. Um, Barry also the, the original property was was um, uh, basically laid out by these two brothers called the Imlay brothers who also bought and established another property um, south of Pambula called um, Oatlands and and which is historically registered property um, where Barry also owns this property and and where he's established a microbrewery of all things so. Barry and his family have a microbrewery there, which also has a plant nursery and sort of gallery and cafe, and that thing is humming along. So I can see a whole lot of tourism-related assets combining you know, with what Barry does and, and the golf course, um, and whether Barry has the interest or the means of bringing the golf course back to life. But you know, the, the person who contacted me earlier, earlier on certainly went out there with curiosity to go and find this golf course and play it. And when he found it was shut, he investigated further and realised what it was. And he's very interested to sort of try and be part of bringing this golf course back to life. There's a real potential win-win there, isn't there, Adrian, with bringing it back, is that it's preserved and the history mm-hmm. is preserved. We forget, I mean, we've almost got no history in Australia compared to other parts of the world. I know he's been to Scotland to play golf, realises very quickly how short Australia's history is compared to most other parts of the world. What we've got, we kind of need to protect and preserve, don't we? There's a potential there for a win-win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything. And part of the plan would be to restore the clubhouse, which is still there right next to the first tee, 
it's it's um, a little bit run down now, but that that could be restored as a clubhouse and put a little golf museum in there. Because uh, just from walking around the property, Harley and I you know, observed a number of things that would make great little exhibition pieces, even, even from the little grass mowers that they used to push around. Yeah. Probably in the uh, probably a little bit later on, they're not they're not from 1915, but um, there's these you know, push mowers that they used to use. One of those hanging up in a museum would look pretty cool. There's the the toilet <laughs> that they had. You're all class, ba- aren't you? Basically, a thunder box that was just out there. <laughs> that'll that'll really bring them in. They'll be they'll be flocking from Pandu and Marimbula yeah. to have a look at the Kamaruka can. There is all of the old uh, wooden uh, hole signs though, with the hole names on them, okay. so you can see all of the hole names. Um, it's a bit classier, um, and, and a lot of stuff. Like there's there'll be a heap of memorabilia. We'll get the Octoloni clubs and all that sort of stuff. So. And the estate is is not sort of this private estate where no one goes. I mean, it is part of the uh, part of the township of Candelo. Use Camaruka State. It still has they still have matches regularly on the cricket field, right? So it's part of you know there's, there's the Camaruka Candelo Cricket Club or the Candelo Cricket Club. So there's a lot of you know sporting and recreational activity. People still get married at Camaruka. There's a whole lot of things that still happen there and music events and things like that. So I think the whole tourism aspect and of, of you know these sort of pastimes would be something where it would be a really good fit. Yeah. And one of the models might be to set it up as a trust um, where it's effectively owned by the, the people of the town and uh, have some covenants over that where it's got to be a golf course. Um, so protect, protect that heritage of it yeah. being a golf course. Uh, for generations to come. So that notion of tourism is really going to be and is proving to be the saviour in a shifting world, isn't it, where places are going from a rural uh, model of where most of the finance comes from working the land and whatever, or logging the land or whatever it might be to actually opening the land up for people to come and see and look at and there's enough interest in that. That's mm. a viable mm. alternative. It might mm. be, in fact, more lucrative for Barry Moffat to have a golf course in that corner probably than a paddock. That he sometimes puts Correct. cows in. So Partic- it might not be, but it might be. Particularly, so I think once once people we you know we start we're telling beginning to tell the story of how mm. significant the golf course is, mm. and 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 then that people from Sydney and Melbourne and other parts of Australia will go there to, to have ticket a off their list. The oldest potentially We've the oldest seen course. In Ratho has been quite popular in Tasmania in that way, hasn't it? It's a it's a curiosity that people golfers want to see uh, yep. and experience. Yep. And, you know, it's never going to be a multi-million dollar success story, but it's mm. going to be able to sustain itself mm. over time. And for those who are interested, it'll be there, yeah. could be there to have a look at. Well, and the interesting thing, I was just on that one note of Ratha, I mean, I've, we've, I've seen it with, I guess you guys have seen it and played I've it. I've been there. It's, you know, Guarantee it's- Guarantee he hasn't been there. No, I haven't been yeah, there. It's, it's, you know, I've, I've played it and it, it's-, it's it's quirky and interesting, but it, it very much feels that you're playing golf through. Um, it's an open expanse and, and and paddock, and has a lot of charm. But I, you know, of the two, you know, um, Kamaruka was built as a proper penal piece of golf course architecture. It was built with you know bunkering, extensive, extensive bunkering, and extensive thought to green sites and 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 shapes and and these sorts of things. And the land itself, instead of the sort of broad expanse, it's. You've got golf holes on river flats. You've got golf, as I said, the dramatic t- opening tee shot across the Candelo Creek. Uh, you've got golf holes hitting up through valleys. You've got uh, over the ridge top. There's such enormous variety mm. in, in the in the in the piece of land. Uh, it's it's certainly more picturesque than than Ratho and uh, and more dramatic golfing wise. 
So uh, I think it's a superior piece of golfing ground that was that was built. One up already. Very spacious. It hasn't even been restored yet. That's it's very very spacious and wide and just fascinating. Like it, it really benefits from being nine holes yeah. on a you know relatively small paddock. Spacious, um, but also contained. You get the valley hole where you're sort of isolated, and then you mm-hmm. play the next shot up on mm-hmm. the ridge, and then you're high up, and you've got sort of 360 degree views, you know, back to the homestead and and to rain mountain ranges sort of out in the distance. So it's that those elevational changes and the topography, um, you know, it's it's a, you know, if you had more of that land, you wouldn't hesitate building a golf course, modern golf course on, on land like that today. Um, that's a, that's so it, so it's pretty good. And I, I don't imagine it's going to cost mega bucks to restore it either. The just acquiring well, only, the properties. Wouldn't you only right? stuff it up? The more money you had and spent, Absolutely. the more you'd stuff it you up. You could have really? more, too much money to stuff it up. And I think what Harley said earlier about. The reason for its demise or its gradual demise over many decades was, you know, it started really with the lack of irrigation. And that's where a guy like, you know, Pat Wilson can come in and identify ways to get some storage of water in there and, you know, the best places to put a tank, for example, and then just, you know, be able to feed water down into areas of the course from there uh, and, you know, keep grass on the greens for a start. Um, and then the fairways. Pat just sort of, you know, digs around in the grass and goes, oh, look, yeah, this, this is common cooch here. Like, and, you know, there's, it's all there, you know. And it says, we'll just put something in place to kill that stuff off. The place is infested with this African love grass, um, which uh, isn't apparently that hard to get rid of. Um, but under that, it's just common cooch. And you just have to nurture that a little bit and it'll take over. Um, and uh, you'll have some pretty good playing surfaces. You're not, you're not trying to produce PGA Tour playing surfaces. In fact, exactly what you don't want. No. So you want a proper golf experience that's that's got somewhat. You know, I know you build a website. What's the what's the next step? What can people do if they want to be involved or if they're more interested, aside from going out and buying a copy of Golf Australia magazine to read the story, which I'm, it really is very Shame cool. on them if they don't. Shame on them if yeah. they don't. Uh, you go to kamarukagolf.com. Um, you can you sign up. K A M. E R U K A golf. I expect you'll expect me to put that in the show Dot notes, com. no doubt. Yeah, that, yeah, on the show notes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> given one uh, <laughs> uh, G in Kamaruka golf. Um, and, <laughs> Very nice. Uh, so people people can go to that. There's a little form that you can sign up for the Society of Kamaruka Golfers. It's free. Uh, I would encourage everybody all around the world sign up for the Society of Kamaruka Golfers as a way to show your support. Uh, what do you get for that? Signing up at the moment, it's undefined. <laughs> but You'll say thank you occasionally. It's a way of showing support. Uh, I thank the people who've already signed up. We've been really impressed with the the reaction so far. Exceeded expectations. It's exceeded is expectations. How you it to me. It's been uh, it's been very very positive. A lot of locals uh, signing up and expressing their you know their joy that something's happening with this, um, which is really great to see. And uh, follow on social media. Again, Kamaruka Golf on Twitter and Kamaruka Golf on Instagram. Um, and we'll do our best to get news out to people as regularly as possible. Um, there's a bunch of content that we're looking to publish over the next uh, weeks and months. Um, Harley, in addition to the magazine article, uh, Harley wrote an excellent piece from an architect's perspective that we're going to publish on the website. And it's very informative from the historical viewpoint covers a lot of what we've talked about here and a lot and goes into a lot more depth on a lot of that stuff. Uh, and there's a really good photo gallery there, which um, you know, I've, 
I've spent a lot of time just looking at those myself. Um, I've really enjoyed just- It would be a mix of yours and some of the historical stuff you found on the site? Uh, it's just got my ones up there now, but um, we're, we're going to get some historical stuff as well. Um, the map of the course that Harley talked about is there as well, um, and it is a beautiful piece of artwork, if nothing else. And what you see on that map is, like we're saying, it's all there in the ground. Um, so from a restoration point of view, you know, I think- digging some holes and um, getting some sand out of the creek and putting it in there and uh, grass in the greens and putting some interesting slopes back in the ground there. And uh, we can all play golf again. We could get this thing conceivably up and running within, you know, under in the same sort of time frame that Ernest Banks built it in. That's right. It'd be, it'd be a 12-month <laughs> exercise at most. And, it's, and a lot of it would be sort of careful, sort of careful handwork. You know, you, you could – the careful, you know, you're sort of, you've, you're basically re- revealing what's there, right? And just you're not taking in huge bulldozers and shifting. Oh, no, well, worse, no, none of those at all. It's 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 almost just revealing what already exists. Stuff it's, away, it's, it's, yeah. It is. It's almost just scraping. It's the, sort of the archaeological dig, just scraping mm. away the, um, the some of the weeds and the grasses that are there, and really carefully doing the the, the bunkers and preserving these across the ridges and things by hand. Um, just doing that all really, really carefully, and and. But, you know, there's not a lot of hours involved with doing that um, and getting a tractor and a slasher out there and starting to cut the pastures down and start to get some a bit of water onto it and and remove the broadleaf weeds and start to get some sort of finer turf grasses and um, the, the greens themselves will need a bit more attention, but the shapes are still there. And so it's 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 virtually there. It's just peeling back the the, the layers. It plugs very much into what we talked about last week. Isn't it? This mm-hmm. is very much small golf, yep. Kamaruka. Uh yeah, it's a real time capsule, and I don't think we've got anything like that in Australia mm. because, and again, I think due to its history, it never, it it had a formal golf club, but I don't think they ever had enough money to go investing in tree planting programs or anything like that. So, even the corridors that you play down, if you look at an aerial of of the property right now, you you, you don't see that that silly looking, you know, back and forth of holes um, lined by by trees it just doesn't exist there and uh, a lot of the trees that have come in have probably only existed in the last 20 years since the course started to uh, uh, go out of play so a lot of those we'll be able to get rid of and uh, open it all up again Um, not that it's really closed in yeah yeah. it's not closed in but it, it just it, it it's never had it's a true time capsule, and the playing surfaces I think can be preserved so that they'll be they'll they'll be much like they'll be maintained in a similar manner to the way they were maintained uh, in the past. With maybe even get some goats on the, on the yeah, course we, to we talk about even keep that, the grass down. So keep the grass down, and and you know they never had the means to sort of properly drain some wet areas. So they were they, you know and you know with modern modern ability just to to get some drainage to to, to um, to drain these wet areas and boggy areas, all of a sudden you've got, again, a golf course that could be played all year round. I suspect that with droughts in summer and wet winters, it sort of, you know, meant the conditions could have been pretty poor at times. So, so we could, these things could be all relatively easily fixed up and you have a year round golf course that, um, that could be a whole lot of joy, you know, months of the year. Two words spring to mind. Both overused, literally and unique. But this does sound like it is literally <laughs> unique. Yeah. Uh, it is, and there's a fairly deep name. We haven't mentioned the word Kamaruka in terms of its meaning, but um, the word Kamaruka is from the local Yuan uh, Aboriginal language, which is sort of from Nara south to the 
to the sort of Eden area, and and Kamaruka means wait until I return. Oh. So it's it, you know that's pretty deep and a lot of meaning considering mm. that you know obviously Tooth himself never returned and and uh, and and a lot of the local younger men from the valley bigger valley never returned and so so that that name was chosen by the Imlay brothers in the 1830s to so to think that there's this deep me- Aboriginal meaning of wait until I return I think to me is something that's um, pretty special too. Uh, yeah. A lot of uh, really interesting. Ingredients there, and in a environment where public golf, as we know, is at risk around the world, many places under pressure, including here in Sydney, the notion that some of the game's history could perhaps be restored in a project like this is somewhat encouraging. It may go some way to help making the argument. Which, by the way, public golf hashtag public golf. If you're on Twitter, use the hashtag public golf and tell us tell us your stories. I've been working a little bit with Sandy Jamison from Oakley down there at Jamo Golf J A M O G O L F. Go and follow Sandy. He's been publishing a lot of stuff from Oakley Golf Course there. But use the hashtag public golf. It's up to golfers to tell the Clovermores and Nicky Gemmels and Jenna Prices of the world why the game is of value and why it's important, why it doesn't need to be shut down and why it's not for middle-aged, overweight, elite, wealthy white men, which is the clear distinction. Crack cocaine for old white guys, I think. It's the line that Malcolm Gladwell coined and Nicky Gemmel freely threw out in her column in The Australian a couple of weeks ago, and golf needs to push back against that, not in a confrontational or aggressive way, but we need to push back against that with real stories of what golf means to people and how important public golf is in that role. So go on Twitter, use the hashtag public golf, the, uh, and get writing. The narrow little segment of golf that that um, that, that piece, that original piece from um, Which exists Malcolm and Gladwell, nobody denies it. Yeah, that does exist. That segment of golf that Gladwell was – um, talking about there, it it's it's just not a proper piece of research representing what golf is all around the world and and even within Los Angeles. Where Nor is it relevant talking. to Australia. Yeah, no. But what he was right. really railing it was the it was country clubs like the LA Country Club, which exactly. has multi millionaire members and pays no land tax, and they have this weird land tax thing. Yeah, and that was which is offensive. It, that Even is as a golfer, you find that offensive. That's that just the wrong. But it's got nothing offensive. to do with golf. But the way that's propagated, it, it's kind of similar to the way you know your Andrew Wakefield anti-vaccination report sort of ended up propagating as ultimately a bunch of nonsense. Um, but uh, and I will know, say again, it's irresponsible for people with a platform like Jenna Price yes. and Nikki Gamble. It's irresponsible of them to regurgitate that without researching the other side. First rule of journalism is there are at least two sides to every story. Even a tabloid daily hack like me knows that. So do better. Yeah, well, I don't mean what- that in an aggressive or disrespectful way, but please do better. That's that's poor journalism with big platforms. We go to a few golfers. My column last week goes to a few golfers. Yeah. Those stories go to lots and lots of people whose decision-making will be skewed because of yeah. the bias that's been displayed yeah. there unnecessarily. That's right. And so. ironically, if golf comes under attack, the last domino to fall will be those secluded that's private exactly clubs right. like your LA Country Club or that's something. That's exactly right. The, the first domino to fall. the only golf available. That would be what golf becomes. You will, in fact, yeah. create what it is that you already accuse the game of being. Exactly. And that is an elitist and wealthy pursuit. So be better, people. Come on the show. Nikki. Jenna, Clover, it's an if, open if, invitation. If you've made it this far. If you've made it this <laughs> far, if you, if, you have, if you haven't had your fill yet, um, or if you know Nikki, Jenna, 
or Clover, tell them the invitation is open. I've sent Clover more a number of requests, haven't had a response. Haven't directly sent Nikki or General, but I have done on so on Twitter. Uh, but yeah, you're welcome to come on the show. We'd love you to come into the studio, sit here and have a civil discussion about something that's pretty important to everybody, not just golfers. And I'd defy anybody, you know, an anti-golf person to come and see what Kamaruka could become with the maintenance practices that would be in place there and just how simple golf can be mm. and how fun it can be. Um, yeah, it's just it's a fun property just to walk, let alone, you know, play a sport around. And it's a beautiful place to be. And it doesn't cost the earth to maintain it. It can be something that can be there for everyone forever and uh, be a really enjoyable place and, to play. And golf. help golf get better, Harley. We know Absolutely. golf hasn't been perfect and still isn't perfect in terms of its environmental impact. But most golf courses are trying. Golf course superintendents are highly educated people who who want to do better and want it to be better and constantly trying to improve. Mm. Help us. Yep. Don't don't take yeah, pot shots at the game. And, and and golf can be a great economic model for actually managing large areas of land. Absolutely. So if you if you've got, you know, um, there is a study yeah. that says you're better off to keep a golf course than turn it into a park. Correct. Environmentally. Correct. I've been trying to get the author for a while. He's a busy guy. I mean, yeah. But that's a proper study that has found, having studied both forms of open public space, that a golf course is a better environment for natural flora and fauna. Correct. If you want biodiversity, it's very hard to strike that balance in a public park where um, basically it's the you know the tractor with a slasher type mentality to go around and mow around all the trees as quickly as we can and have the open spaces cut down so lots of people can recreate with their dogs and families and kids and that's all this is important stuff but also unfortunately that doesn't allow um, important ground floor and biodiversity to be retained and so that's where golf is that great model for that um, and that can and that can be public golf courses and private so so I look at Moore Park as having enormous potential to be a great biodiversity place better than what it is today um, and and that and then you think about it too it, you know <laughs> the reason why the minister um, made his decision last year and said, no, no, more parks got to stay as 18 holes, is that whole facility is a great economic model of, of land use that allows and raises funds to help manage the rest of the Centennial Parklands. That's exactly right. Um, so, you know, there's, there's something like $3 million a year comes out of the golf um, facility that helps and is a generous sum to, mm. towards the, the, the overall management of the entire 250 hectares. None of which even touches on the non-financial aspects and the mental health of those people who use the facility for whom who would never go walking in a park but will go out and walk 18 holes of golf That's right. or nine holes of golf. Yep. If the goal is to have people walking and exercising and if they won't do this but they will do that, well, then promoting that makes some sense. And if that is golf, then let's do that. So Absolutely. Is that enough? Can we get off the soapbox now? Mm. It's high up here. Yeah. <laughs> up here on this high horse. I'll need a ladder to climb it down. Yeah, I've got, um, a, I've got a bit of a meeting I've got to get to. Harley, been great to have you aboard. Thank you, mate. Love, great to hear about the story of Kamaruka. We, we need to some sign off for you. But, yeah, well, you can go. Okay, Thank thanks. you. I wasn't sure. <laughs> and Adrian, been great to have you aboard too, mate. We'll hear lots more about this, obviously, as it goes along. But thanks for coming. Thanks very much, Roger. I've got thanks a very important meeting I've got to be at as well. Episode <laughs> 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 66 of Good Good. Done and Dustable. We'll see you for episode 67 next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.